Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're dealing with the twin horrors of mortgages and puppets. Our guest is the clown prince of horror himself, Grady Hendrix. He was on the show once before to talk about the Final Girl Support Club. Now he's back with his brand new novel, also gradily titled How to Sell a Haunted House. We dive into the economics of haunting, something that continues to interest me. We talk about his move, potentially, from irony to the heartfelt. And we find out the difference between marionettes and hand puppets. Because this book is full of puppetry, and Grady is writing from much experience. I should just mention that because we were recording on a tight schedule, coupled with the fact that my Mac decided to update all its software at precisely the worst time, we had a slightly squeezed hour to record this conversation. That's why, towards the end, you may hear me start to talk like you've hit the 1.5 speed button on your phone. Yeah. Nonetheless, we pack a lot into this chat. I mean, it's almost impossible not to with Grady. Remember, the Patreon is there if you want bonus content. I just put another Whispers episode live. That's a set of extra questions for previous guests, often skewing towards the more offbeat or craft-oriented. You can sign up for a few dollars at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod to help support this show as well as getting goodies. And there has been lots of talk about merch since I launched the new logo, so... Watch this space, patrons. The other thing to say, and and sorry, because I try to keep these intros from being long-winded, but I want everyone to hear this. As you may know, the writer Laird Barron has been enduring some pretty difficult health problems recently. Laird is someone who means an awful lot to an awful lot of people in this community. His writing is truly phenomenal, and he's sadly not been able to do a lot of it recently. Laird's currently in hospital, and his friends Mike Davis and John Langan, names you may recognise, they've set up a GoFundMe to help Laird with his mounting medical bills. And God, I've never been so glad to have the NHS. I've donated, and I really want to spread the word and, and help out as much as possible. I know I'm asking for money a lot here, but if it's a choice between signing up to my Patreon this month or supporting Laird choose the latter. We need him and his stories. I'll put a link in the show notes and and much love to anyone who's able to help out. Right, that's a lot of intro. Let's crack on. So come with me to an empty house on an unremarkable street. Check every corner for beady little eyes peering down at you. Let's talk scared. Hi, Grady, and well, welcome back to Talking Scared. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm always I'm always happy to talk, and and I make a living out of being scared, so I feel in my <laughs> wheelhouse. Indeed, yeah. I mean, it's been a couple of years since we last spoke. I think you were last on for Final Girl Support Group. How have the intervening months treated you? I've mostly been writing and rewriting How to Sell a Haunted House. Um, it took me a lot longer to sort of land this one than it normally does. So uh, much to my frustration, I think it was like three completely different books before I got to the fourth one that's more 
um, if it's close to the one that's going to come out. And even then, it still needed editing from there. But uh, so, yeah, so that's I've been banging my head on this book, to be honest. Well, it's it's worked out well. I mean, that, that is the book we're here to talk about, How to Sell a Haunted House, which is a very Grady Hendrix title. Um, <laughs> Thank you. You mean you mean ridiculously long and no one will remember it? I agree. It's on brand. I can say this one. that I think we talked last time about how um, the vampire slaying one, I still can't pin it down. But this one, <laughs> this one slips off the tongue. Thank you. It will surprise no one to hear that it's, it's about a haunted house, but a, uh, a very particular kind of haunting. Um, we haven't got that much time for this interview, so let's, let's jump straight into it. Can you tell us what we need to know at this point about how to sell a haunted house? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really straightforward story. It's about an adult pair of siblings who can't stand each other, a brother and a sister. And when their parents die in a car wreck unexpectedly, they have to sort of work together to clean out their childhood home and, and put it on the market as as you do. And as it says right there in the title, you know, spoiler alert, uh, the house is haunted. And um, it's haunted by puppets and dolls, which is really disgusting and i apologize for that um <laughs> it's uh th their mother had a puppet ministry and um all those puppets are left behind and someone's gotta put them in the trash and they don't want to go yeah they really don't want to go um and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you mentioned puppets because i was like oh if he doesn't want to talk about the puppets that's going to be a problem so I'm, I'm glad you uh you announced that 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 makes things much easier from my perspective i always want to talk about puppets and dolls so yeah i'm <laughs> Well, before we get to puppets, let, let's talk about the house, I suppose, because, well, I'm going to take take kind of question with something that you say in the forward, forward right at the start. You say that there is nothing more comforting than a haunted house story. And, and I've got to ask, because surely a haunted house is one of the most discomforting things we can imagine. Yeah, well, you know, it is and it isn't, right? Houses are so central to us that I don't even think we really get how important they are. I mean, I think for a lot of people, the worst nightmare that can happen for them is they lose their home. Um, you know, uh, they're so central to our identity. You know, someone doesn't have a, a, a place to hang their hat. Someone doesn't have a place to sleep. Um, we spend so long saving up to buy one or renting one. And they're just so important to us. And, you know, they're where we do everything that matters to us. And so the fact that they're the site of hauntings, you know, makes total, total sense. Um, in fact, when I did my first book, Horror Store, about a haunted Ikea, that was more of a stretch that a ghost would haunt a workplace than, mm -hmm. than a home. And the thing that made it nice about the haunted Ikea is that, well, Ikeas are just full of little mini fake homes, right? All those little room displays are just fake model homes. Um, but they're just so grossly important to us and and so you know haunted house stories go back to ancient uh, athens i think you know they just have been with us forever because you know what's the difference between a ghost and a memory and a dream i mean they vary our slippy cat slippery categories uh that slide over each other and 
you know, houses are where they contain all these memories for us. They're haunted by all our ghosts. Mm-hmm. That's why it's such a Freudian conceit, you know, not to not to get too heavy early on. But, oh, let's get heavy. Yeah. You know, but yeah, because like Freud talks about the uncanny, which I think I've said this before, but the uncanny translates into the original German as the unho- unhomely, which means yeah. a home that is not a home. Um, and I think, you know, and, and that thing about memories and dreams, it's all a weird kind of architecture of the mind you know it's it's repression and it's trauma and these buried things all of which obviously comes to the fore in a lot of haunted house stories but particularly in this one through these dolls um yeah so i i do find all that metaphorical stuff really interesting yeah well you know and it's it is you know you get into that notion of the uncanny and that takes you right into the 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 um uncanny valley right like you're saying that that place where automatonophobia dwells, that fear of something that looks human, but isn't quite human. So yeah, I mean, home and dolls, they're all very, very close together. And, you know, we all grew up with um, stuffed animals, you know, uh, unless you're weird. I mean, but action figures, stuffed animals, dolls, um, those are things that surround us when we're kids. Well, yeah, indeed. I mean, and well, and speaking of growing up, so you may have been asked this a million times, and if not, you're going to be asked it a million times because of no. what your editor put on the press release. But am I right in thinking that this story is in some way inspired by your own family home? Oh, absolutely. I, the house is more based on a relative's house that I really like. You know, I wrote this during the pandemic, and so one of the luxuries you have when you write a book is you're going to hang out somewhere for about 10 months to a year, somewhere imaginary. And so it always helps to make it somewhere you like and the people (laughs) be characters you like. So I sometimes indulge a little bit and set my books in places that I find comfortable. And so my aunt's house that this is based on is a place I just loved growing up. It's where we had all our family get togethers. It's where we had all our big family holidays. And so it was always just so comforting to me. So it was my one sort of like security blanket during the pandemic is to be spending all this time imagining my aunt's house. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is very much based on my aunt's house. And there, it's not based on really anyone in my family, but these are all relationships that I've seen in people's families that to some extent play out in, our fa- in my family. You know, one of the things that really blew my mind once is one of my sisters started telling these stories about my family. And I was like, I don't recognize any of these stories she's telling. And then I realized they were the exact same stories I knew, but they were from her point of view and they were completely different than the versions I knew. And so it was like, you know, there was some objective truth somewhere, but right then she and I had these two radically different set of facts almost and that was really eye-opening to me to be like oh neither of us are right or wrong here but this has totally shaped how we interact with our family and we're, we're practically almost strangers in a way it was very it was very disorienting uh, well that's something you actually play within the book whether intentionally or not but you you start this book following louise the, the sister of um, the central pair and her husband mark is just seems to be just an absolute dread sorry her husband her brother mark brother seems to be <laughs> talking of the, the, there's slip. a freudian slip yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, seems to be just a dreadful person um and then obviously there, there is a kind of hinge point in the middle where you realize 
there's something more going on and there are there are other perspectives at play and and there's a kind of sliding sympathy that I I didn't expect I thought it was going to be a much more simple kind of good sibling bad sibling approach but no there is a lot of elastic sympathy in there isn't there well I hope so you know uh Mark I really haven't had except for Basil in um whatchamacallit horror store my first mm-hmm. book uh, whatchamacallit good god um except for horror store he's been the only male main character who's sort of you know a good i don't like to think of good guys and bad guys but you know someone who wasn't the antagonist yeah um and it was so much fun to write him i mean he's he's very closely to some extent based on some a, a, a really close person uh i grew up with who's who's passed away now but I love writing that kind of like loud, aggressive Southern bro um, <laughs> who's just always a mess. They're always a train wreck, but they're a kind of dude I love because, you know, they they just want to be liked. They're just going about it in the wrong way. And I, and I feel like that, that's Mark to some extent. You know, he's he's not a bad guy. He's just drawn that way. There is a, a beautiful moment when the, the the wills are being read and he finds out he's done quite well and he literally fist pumps the air and he, <laughs> his parents are barely barely in the ground. That that made me kind of wince. It, it, there's, there's there's a kind of sort of slacker cringe comedy to uh, to some of this. Yeah, but also you know um, you know he celebrates the little victories. You know what what's mm. the point in the victory if you don't celebrate even if it's grossly inappropriate to do so at the moment uh he's yeah. a creature of pure id <laughs> we can't get away from freud okay. <laughs> but i mean i want to talk a lot about the, the kind of the family dynamics and the emotional core of this because it's it, well it's, it's great for want of a better word oh thank you before we do talk a bit more cynically talk about like you know the finance and, and the fact that that the will plays a big part in that stuff this is one of the few haunted houses that directly addresses something I've been saying for years, which is that all American haunted house stories are at the very bottom about the mortgage. Because basically, oh, yeah. let, let's face it, if you really went into a haunted property, you know, that would be a problem. Most people can't do a George Lutz and flee the amateurville horror in the night. Why did you decide to put that so front and center. I mean, I mean, it's even in the title, you know, how to sell right. a haunted house. Right. Well, you know, so it's funny. Um, I'm, it's interesting you say that because I, I have been like playing with haunted house books and haunted house ideas for, for books and movies and all kinds of stuff for a long time, because I agree. I think there's so much, so many economic factors involved. And in fact, I put something out on Twitter asking people if they'd ever moved from a house or an apartment that they either owned or rented because it was haunted. And I had more than, I would say more than four or five people, um, because there were about 90 who responded, but more than four or five were just sort of like, yeah, I did live in a haunted house or one we thought was haunted, but I couldn't afford to do anything. So I just had to stay. And at the same time, when I've been pitching projects and haunting projects and things like that about a haunted property, and none of these have come to fruition, the pushback I always get from editors and producers, they all, there's that always that key question. 
why don't you leave, right? Like, why do you stay in the house? Are the doors locked? Like, right? That was the castle film version. You are locked up in here for the night and you can only escape if you find, you know, some secret map or door or something. Or then there was the version of if you can stay overnight in a haunted house, you'll win $1 million. Yeah. You know, and that, and I was always saying, you can't afford to leave. I mean, and I, and I, I really believe that. Um, I, I, a book I wrote that I never published uh, is all about a family that moves into a house they can barely afford. They're sort of an aspirational home move. And when they discover it's haunted, their solution is ignore it. We can't afford to go anyone else. So we just have to consistently ignore every horrible hell mouth thing that's going on. Um, and every time I say this, every time, the pushback I get from editors and producers is that doesn't fly. No one's going to buy that. So even though I think in reality, it's a factor and I've heard from people in their lives, it's a factor. And you and I both say it's a factor. No one, no sort of gatekeeper will let you use that. And so with this book, I finally found the thing that flipped it. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, um, Hey, I'm selling, uh, cheese. Oh, no one's buying. Oh, what if I deep fry the cheese? Now everyone wants it. <laughs> and with this, the deep frying was finally, oh, it's a house that's in a, in a will. And even though, you know, even though the house in earlier versions, it was t- amped up. So like Louise had to make this sale or she was going to lose her house and all these other things. But even then, there's something about fighting over a will and an inheritance and the economic issues there that I think everyone understands on a gut level and really responds to in a way they don't respond to i can't afford to move completely and i mean first of all i i think the pushback from executives is perhaps an, an indictment of the bonus structure in media in media companies these people are clearly being paid too much if they can't imagine not being <laughs> able to flee their house in the night you know but at the same time i think it's a useful it was a useful exercise for me because it's like if they push back on that, you know, think about how many people who are, or who you know, who are, I mean, who I know plenty, you know, who live a, a not a marginal existence, but, you know, they don't have a lot of money and, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have the money, but who would say, oh, that's garbage. I'd leave right away. Like, it's very hard to live that in the abstract to say, oh, I really wouldn't have enough money to move if my family was in danger or something, you know, I think it's, I don't know. I can't wait for Mike Lee to make a haunted house movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have you seen the movie His House? No. You know what? It's I'm so bad at keeping up with new stuff. It's totally on my list. I was I was writing this book when that came out, and I didn't want to watch any other haunted house mm-hmm. stuff because I didn't want to accidentally steal an idea. But that whole thing with them being granted the housing, the living situation, I totally feel like that's a clever solution to that. Very much so. And there's also a really kind of lo-fi British film called When the Lights Go Out or something like that, which is a, it's about a famous haunting in Yorkshire, um, in Pontefract. It's a very famous haunting in the UK. It's kind of like our Amateurville horror, you know. Um, okay. They made this really low-key, almost like kitchen sink drama about living in that house and it's everything you're talking about. It's basically as if Mike Lee made a haunted house movie. So I'd recommend checking that out. I owe the UK a huge debt because in the 90s, I think there was 
a horror movie that I never saw because I wasn't going to film festivals at the time, but I read the description of in like three or four different film festival catalogs that really got me thinking about economics and ghosts. And it was called, I think, an urban poltergeist story or an urban, uh, I cannot remember the exact title, but it was basically about a council flat where a woman experienced a poltergeist. And I think the the description was they, that the authority, social workers assumed she was abusing her daughter because of the bruises and things. And, um, and that's the first time I really, really started thinking about economics and, and hauntings. So thanks, UK. I don't know what that is, but yeah, well, we're good for something every now and again, mostly <laughs> making really depressing movies with peeling wallpaper, <laughs> but we'll take it. Um, to move from the financial and practical to the emotional, um, mm-hmm. You mentioned that you wrote this book during COVID. And first of all, I thought, well, how interesting. Someone wrote a, a haunted house story whilst they're presumably stuck in their house. Yeah. And as you said, it's a bit of a bit of a comfort blanket in that regard because you could take yourself somewhere else. But I, I do wonder whether the book is born out of an emotional state in COVID. But sorry for asking if this is, if this is prying too oh, no, much. No, no, not at all. It is a book that is so thematically about grief and loss. Right. Is there some interplay there between the circumstance and, and the fiction? Oh, absolutely. And there's a good side of it and a bad side of it. And the good side of it is I missed my family and I wanted to write about a family so I could hang out with one, you know, an imaginary family in my head because I couldn't hang out with my real one. And the the darker side of that is, you know, my mom had a health scare during COVID and I went down to South Carolina to, to stay with her for a little bit while she got back on her feet. And I remember being in her garage and looking at all this stuff and thinking, oh my God, if she dies while I'm here, I'm going to have to clean out all this crap. Like whenever she dies, there's all this stuff. And it's such a, and I've had to do that for a friend before. And and I know a lot of other people who who have gone through that. And it's such a kick in the teeth. You go through this enormous loss and then you've got to clean out a house. Like, and, and often that house is the house you grew up in. It's just, it's asking too much. Sometimes the world just asks too much um, because there's some things that are easy. Oh, it's, you know, this family heirloom, this chair Uncle Dave made for my mom and dad, family photos. But then you get into stuff like, Oh, it's a bunch of my mom's clothes. It's my dad's tax returns. It's, you know, this um this golf ball. He uh, like, you know, this stuff that like you've got to throw it away, but you there's no there's no emotional content in it for you, but there was for them. And so it feels like you're kind of erasing them and you are. I mean, the stuff we leave behind. I mean, what's a ghost, I guess, but something we leave behind. But those objects, they're like they're like the last fingernails dug into the physical plane as we die in some sense. And as you throw them out, you're just prying that person's presence. You know, you're making them mm-hmm. forgettable. And um, but you have to, or you'll be overwhelmed by stuff. And so it's such a terrible terrible predicament so yeah that 100 percent came out of covid well i mean it's a really nice segue you presented now to talk about puppets because because the thing that is in, <laughs> the thing that's imbued with all this kind of resonance and memory is a, a whole lot of puppets but 
but but one in particular. Now, I, I want to do this in a spoiler-free way, so I'm going to throw it over to you to introduce us to Pupkin in a way that you're comfortable with without going too far. So tell us about Pupkin. Yeah, so uh, Mark and Louise, their mother had a, a Christian puppet ministry, So, and she was sort of one of those crafty persons, people who's always like, needle doing needlepoint and making little you know owls out of seashells with googly eyes on them and things and she really channeled a lot of that into puppets and you know did shows at churches and all this stuff but the one puppet she's had all her life is pupkin and um he he's ha she's had him since she was a little girl and he's terrifying he's a little bit of like not quite a clown but he's not quite a human something in between um and you know, and I think a lot of us have that childhood comfort object. You know, it's a panda or Lammy or Bunny or Curious George or a blankie or something that we just have. And and no one's ever quite sure how we got it. It sort of showed up in our crib one day. And um, and we really bond with it when we're kids. It's sort of how it, it sort of prepares you for being a parent in some way because it teaches you how to love something that doesn't love you back. Mm -hmm. um, and like a pet. You project a lot onto it, but you have this relationship. And unlike a pet, a pet eventually dies, unfortunately. But but these objects don't. I mean, that's the whole thesis of the Toy Story movies, you know. And um, I always think they let Andy off the hook in those films, frankly. Um, and they're really complicated because what do you owe this object? I mean, nothing. It's an object. But at the same time, can you, okay, if it's just an object, tear its head off. Well, you can't do that. You can't do that to Lammy. Like, Lammy's been nice to you and, and been your buddy all these years. So they're, they occupy a really strange space. And we invest them with so many emotions. Um, and Pupkin's just an example of, well, uh, you know, if someone's had that puppet all their life and they're still using it and playing with it when they're in their 60s and 70s, it's going to have a lot of emotions pent up in there. They're not just going to fade away, you know, they're not going to give up so easy. Just because the owner is dead, it doesn't mean they have to be. Well, well, yeah, exactly. And Pupkin is a real sort of entity of chaos in this book. Yeah. Well, it, and I, I'm really glad you said that because in puppetry, there is a huge difference between hand puppets and marionettes. Marionettes, you know, controlled by strings, hand puppets you wear on your head. Marionettes always have a little bit of dignity and grace to them. Uh, hand puppets are chaos and disorder. Punch is a hand puppet. You know, all these sort of knockabout puppets are hand puppets. They bring anarchy. That's what they do. <laughs> yeah, and, and you'd actually do quite a lot of kind of theorizing in, in sort of in the margins about puppets. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole section in the middle of the book that talks about theater and the wearing of masks and puppetry. Um, and about how those things are inherently chaotic and, and frightening. And, and that sequence should be absurd because it starts off, I think, as a kind of parody of avant-garde theatre, but it becomes right. this really freaky, disorienting like, sort of story within the story, kind of like a Robert Aikman kind of thing where you don't quite know oh. where the margins are, you know? Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. All of that theory, all, is that your invention or, or is that grounded in some kind of tradition well you know the first sentence mark says in that is uh or the last in the previous chapter is uh 
back, you know, I used to belong to a radical puppet collective and I, I belonged to a radical puppet collective for a while uh, in the 90s. Um, and we were very political and um, I was really into puppetry. And so, you no, know, all that stuff has, um, has basis in, in puppetry and political theater and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, when you see it all over the world, right, there's still religious traditions that use masks to mask and dance to sort of initiate these trance and possession states. You see it in Indonesia. You see it in, um, and I'm going to say the name wrong, um, so I won't say it, but there's some forms of Indian dance uh, that do it. Um, this idea of um, you put on a mask and that opens you up to possession by some god or some spirit. Wow. And, and it, I, the way I read it, it kind of, are you familiar with the concept of the carnivalesque? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so, yeah, this is a thing I learned about at university and hadn't thought about in years. But this idea that jesters and jokers and, you know, the the, the, the radical puppet collective, that they provide a kind of cultural thing where they're able to question and undermine and attack authority with impunity i suppose yeah a hundred percent and that's you know and you see that in a lot of um of uh authoritarian states i mean communist china the soviet union even before it was really the soviet union nazi germany one of the early things they cracked down on mexico when it had a socialist government one of the first things a lot of these governments crack down on is puppetry and puppet shows i mean it's a lot of a lot of expressions of folk culture just because those are sort of more anarchic and more carnivalesque but puppetry is usually included in there i do want to hear more about your puppetry background because who knew um but you know maybe, <laughs> maybe you're well placed to tell us then that why is it that in horror and genre why is it that something so small and soft and and kind of practically unthreatening why are they so often figures of fear yeah i mean it's a good question right and sometimes you you get why uh, something like a rat you get into James Herbert territory and sure they're giant swarms of rats, but even one rat, there's something about, um, uh, the, the horror of abnegation, the, 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 the primal revulsion. It's a rat. It's dirty. It carries diseases. It lives in garbage and in the sewer. So we have this instinctive revulsion, but then why do we have it for a doll or mm. a puppet? You know, they're they're clean, they're manufactured. And and sure you've got the dirty doll, right? The the dusty old Victorian doll with the, you know, cobwebs in its frilly dress and a cracked porcelain face. But I really wanted to try to find the horror in in just the puppets we grew and dolls we grew up with. I mean, lots of us grew up with parents who had a little Harlequin figure on the the back of the t on the top of the TV, or a clown painting, or a couple of funny monkey dolls on the sofa, or a doll collection. And even now, we surround ourselves with those Funko figures and collectible action figures, and um, we give dolls to our kids. Our dogs have dolls they play with, you know, little things they rip up, and we got baby Yoda dolls. But there's something really disconcerting about something that looks human but isn't alive. Um, and, you know, someone once said dolls are the only inanimate object that can make eye contact. And there's something very disturbing about that uh, on, a, on, a, on a very primitive level, I think, for us. It fires off a reptilian part of our brain, mm. you know, the part that looks for threats and tries to assemble faces out of the dark to make sure we're not about to be 
eaten by some great whopping predator. Um, but there's also just this weird area they exist in. They look human, but they're not human. We invest them with power all the time, right? Um, you know, ancient religions that made um, effigies, little doll effigies of people yeah. or gods. I mean, you know, dolls are one of the few things that gets a Ten Commandment, you know, no graven images. Um, and, and sure, that's about worshiping other gods, but it's also like, hey, don't, don't, don't make a doll you get too into. Um, well, I always think about, you know, like the changelings of fairy lore as well. I always think there's uh-huh. some connection yeah. there, you know, that something's replaced your baby that isn't your baby. You know, it's that uncanny yes, exactly. valley but tied into mythology in some way. And and those those Funko dolls you mentioned, you look at those, they are just fetishes. They're, you know, like like we would have had in time immemorial, just like an effigy yeah. on the mantle in some way. That's it's just a plastic modern fetish. Exactly. And you know, the other thing that I think is really interesting is um puppets are sort of like a doll times 10. Because if you're operating a puppet, especially a hand puppet, it does feel like you're split into two people. I mean, even if you just take your sock, pull it over your hand, draw a little face on it, and just mess around with it for a minute or two, even if you've never done puppets before, after you mess around with it for five or 10 minutes, and then ask yourself, where is the will coming that's moving my hand? Am I generating that? Or is that coming from my hand? Like, it's very hard to to split that because you've split yourself almost into two people. Um, it's a really weird state. And I think instinctually as humans, we're a little wary of that state. We're a little wary of, of things that bend our brain that way. So it- I've got to hear more about your puppetry background because I, I, it's just, it's too interesting, right? So like, have you had a, obviously you've not been possessed by the spirit of a demonic puppet, what one would hope, but have you had this kind of slightly chaotic sliding experience where you, you oh, aren't sure. quite sure where you end and the puppet begins? Absolutely. I mean, you know, doing mask work, especially in theater, like you put on a mask and it is eerie how much, if you sit there and 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 you just sort of like really are patient with it, it feels like the mask. It feels like the mask is wearing you more than you're wearing the mask, um, which is how it should be when you're doing that kind of performance. Um, and I've definitely done that. There's also, you know, I used to I used to work drag in clubs, and when you're in drag, I, you are. I mean, I'm not saying everyone, but certainly for me, and definitely work in a club environment you're more fearless. You're liable to put yourself into more ridiculous situations because you feel like it's not you. It's this persona. And the persona is like a force field protecting you from harm. Um, And then I did belong to this radical puppet collective up in Boston for a little while who were great. They were really fabulous people. Um, But we did these very sincere, very heavy, very Eastern European shows. And um, the show in the, the elementary school in Worcester is not too far off a show we performed. We weren't thrown out of the school or anything, but like we didn't have any business doing a show about the Pinochet regime to these kids, like these fourth graders, than then uh, the the puppet theater and this uh, uh, and the book has doing a nine eleven show for fourth graders. But you know, we were political. That's what we did, and we were like, "That's cool, man. You knew what you were getting into when you hired us." So- um, I already thought this book was funny, right? <laughs> I, I have this big theory, and I'm like, who am I to say this? It's your work. But I think you have 
over your career, as I've been reading you, the only book I haven't read is uh, My Best Friend's Exorcism. And it feels to me like you have moved from a irony position dominating your work through to a much more heartfelt kind of uh, engagement with with emotion. That That's my reading of your work. Oh, thanks. At the same time, this is your funniest book in terms of oh. straight laugh out loud <laughs> sentences. I mean, that line... I joined a radical puppet collective ends a really important chapter and begins another. And I laughed out loud. Oh, good. But that thing about the piece of puppetry for the primary school children about 9-11, it, actually, it includes the line, by the time we got to the invasion of Afghanistan and all the kids got killed in the drone strike, maybe that was too intense. <laughs> now, this is all much funnier knowing that this is based in some kind of reality. Well, you know, I was at an age, I was in my early 20s, and um, that's the age when you take yourself really, really seriously. I mean, God bless you. It's it's beautiful to be, be that intense and passionate. But with the passage of time, you look back and you're like, oh my God, what was I, what was I thinking? Why did I think that was an appropriate show? Um, and, you know, the fact is, with a little bit of perspective, so much of our lives are ridiculous. Um, you know, we spend so much time worrying about and stressed out about stuff and having these arguments and having these fights that five years later we're like, what were what, what was what was that even about? You know what I mean? My wife and I were just trying, we had some huge argument, I mean really big fight years ago. It was like life or death. And we were we remember the fight but we cannot remember what it was about. And I'm sure to an outside observer, we looked like lunatics because it was probably about something ridiculous. But to us, it was like a battle for survival. Would you agree with, with my thesis that you are moving towards a more sort of heartfelt register? Or is that just an obnoxious yeah. thing for me to say? No, no. I mean, I, I appreciate it. You know, I really try, with every book I do, there's two things going on. And one is there's a question I'm trying to answer with the book. And, and I never really like, you know, I never really put it in the book, but it's sort of like something I want to wrestle with. Like definitely with this book, it was, it was, there was a twofold thing of my sisters and I, you know, we're dealing with our parents getting older and there's element of trying to figure out, you know, what happens to our family when our parents die? Like how, how does it readjust? How do we stay how do we stay a family? You know what I mean? We've just lost the thing we all have in common. Um, and the other thing was, you know, this weird relationship we all have with inanimate objects where we really invest them with all this emotion, our cars, our laptops, our phones, our stuffed animals, our collectibles, all this stuff. Um, but then with every book, I'm also trying to set myself up a technical challenge. You know, with Final Girl Support Group, I'd never done first person before. I'd never written lyrics before we sold our solar really about music, which is really hard because I'm not much of a musician. And with this book, it was really, can I write convincingly about a family that's more than just one person? Like about a, a, a story about a family because families are hard. Yeah, well, in, like in the round sort of thing. Yeah, and everything in a family's backstory, you know, mm -hmm. every single thing, like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but like your partner will get off the phone with their one of their parents or, or, or they'll be talking to one of their parents and they'll be like, oh my God, could you believe that? And you'll be like, what? That seemed like a totally nice conversation. <laughs> and they start going, oh no, you don't understand. And, they start, and, and like, it's all backstory. On the surface, it was just like a totally, oh, your mom's just worried about you. And then it's like, no, no, this is what's happening. It's this all over again. And so- it was really hard to write a family. Mm. And so 
this is a long way around saying, so I'm always, I, I, what's the point if you're not trying to get better? You know what I mean? Like, what's the point? Like, I don't know what I'd be doing if I wasn't trying to get better. So it's really nice to hear from you that the books seem to be getting more heartfelt because to me, that's a sign that I'm moving in the right direction. You know what I mean? I'm really, I'm, I'm really getting to the, to the good stuff that people actually want to read about and respond to. Irony is pretty cheap and I think it's going out of style real fast. I think it's got a sell by date and it's coming up soon. Well, off the back of Fan or Girl Support Group, I wrote an article for Slate about, well, I, I basically talked about your book and about Stephen Graham Jones's My Heart is a Chainsaw, about the fact that I feel like fiction now is finding some way to suture together this kind of postmodern deconstructing impulse that we have with something that is meaningful rather than just ironic. Because, you know, Scream is it's mm-hmm. just an, an exercise in, in irony and, and postmodern self-wankery and stuff. You know, I love it, but it's it's not profound. Right. Whereas what you're doing, what Stephen is doing, what Paul Tremblay is doing in, in some ways, it feels like you're you know, marrying that kind of insider knowledge with something that actually is about something and, and isn't afraid to wear its heart on its sleeve, you know, and I, I'm a big fan of it. No, thanks. I really appreciate it. Well, you know, I think one thing that, that where Paul and Stephen and I all share um, some common ground is we really like people um, and and we care about people. And so we all grew up on, you know, slasher movies and we all love Scream. I mean, I think Stephen would even say that might be one of his fa- his favorite movie. But we also really care about people and and what happens to them. And I don't know where that comes from, but I've seen that a lot more in the world now. And it's funny, I'm I'm old now. Uh, but I look at kids and I'm, you know, you do the thing where you despair, oh my God, they're so this, they're so that, they're so triggered, they're so this. But I also think kids now are a lot kinder than we were growing up. And oh, and, God, and yeah. I've seen yeah, and I, I mean, good God, if you were gay or tr- forget about trans in, in my elementary school, we would have bullied you relentlessly. Mm. And now kids, they're, they're gay friends, they're trans friends, they don't bat an eye. And mm. I think that's so much better, you know, and I, and so I think, I think, you know, one thing for, for this sort of, I think maybe we're a transitional generation, you know, people my age, um, and I think we're the transition between this aggressive irony and this generation of kids coming up who really, they really want to fix things. They really care. And, and they do almost to an obnoxious degree or not obnoxious, almost to a self-destructive degree where their hearts on their sleeves, you yeah. know? And, um, mm. and, and I think at the end of the day, man, you know, we're, we're all just, people and for the most part everyone's trying to do the best they can and some people's best just they just don't have tools uh you know where their best just does not is not the same and so Mm. it's funny i just read paul's uh pallbearers club when it came out and even though it's got all these sort of postmodern devices and this meta narrative that deconstructs itself the amount of empathy he has and, and the amount of kindness he feels towards his main character and sort of those awkward teenage years, it really just oozes through every page. And, you know, Stephen 
will do things to his characters I'm not capable of. I can't write the way Steven writes because I can't do those things to my characters. But there's never a doubt, no matter how grim his books can get, that he really cares about them. You know, he really feels for them. Yeah, and and Heart as a Chainsaw is a testament to that because that the yeah. end of that book brought me to tears. You know, the the epilogue with the bear. I was like, my God, this has yeah. gone from being just an exercise in fan service to breaking my heart. Um, but, yeah, I felt but, the same way. That big stab down was like, okay, this is cool. This is cool. And then the bear, I was like, all right, yeah, there's yeah. there's there's the slam dunk. Yeah, but let's not move away from you. <laughs> this book moved me massively. Um, oh, thank in a, you. In a, in a weird location because I felt so sorry for Pupkin, right? And this is oh, this yeah. is coming back to that theme of grief. And I'm I'm going to tread really carefully around spoilers, but I appreciate it. You know, at first I I had this just this empathy, I suppose, for him rather than sympathy. And at first I thought that was be me being weird and like overly vulnerable to small creatures in pain which i am um you know you can do anything to people but animals or anything i get upset you know don't kill but, that dog exactly which another thing that Stephen does but by the end i kind of think that you endorse the reader's empathy for pupkin to some extent well you know it's the dumb so i really hate the velveteen rabbit in a, in a serious way um, so I've never, I I've never read up, the Velveteen Rabbit, so that, that is a, that <laughs> reference is lost on me a little bit. Well, I grew up loving that book and horrified by it at the same time because it really does. It's about toys, and so people give it to children, and then the message is chilling. But it has that message where it's like, if you're loved enough, you're real, and I'm like, or you're alive, and I'm like, no. The only thing that the only thing living creatures have in common is they die. That is the only thing we all have in common. Every single one of us is is born, and we're going to die. And frankly, once you get into to creatures that are that are generated by you know asexual reproduction, they're not really born, but we all mm. die. We all have an expiration date, and that's what gives our life meaning, right? If you could live an infinite number of centuries, well, no choice you make has any meaning. Like I'm going to be a drug addict. Well, you know, in a hundred years, you'll be over that and you'll do like nothing you do matters because you've got infinite time. You've got an infinite number of choices, but because we all have an expiration date, we have a limited number of things we can do. And you hit that moment in your life. I think for people who are into books, like we are, it's that moment where you realize you're never going to read all, you're never going to get to read all the books. It's not going to happen. Yeah. You're never going to get to do all the things. And for me, a stuffed animal, when I look at Toy Story, there's a horrific element to it where they never die. They're not really alive because they never really die. But if those, if Woody and, and, and Buzz and all those guys were suddenly confronted with mortality, how do you, how do you convince them to embrace that? How do you it's horrifying. You know what I mean? They're not, they're not, they're, their little bodies aren't big enough for that concept. And so, and I always, I will always feel guilty about a couple of childhood stuffed animals I had that you walk away from them and you invested them with all this life and then you leave them behind and they didn't ask to get left behind. Um, you know, they want to hang out with you forever, but they can't. And oh, so you're making, always... me, you're making me upset now, Grady. This is this is getting to be quite a bit. 
No, but I'm just saying, like, so, so it's just, and that's what I mean by this relationship with inanimate mm. objects. Like, it's weird and complicated and gets really emo when you start digging down into it. Yeah, it is like just that, that idea of, you know, you invest something with love to the point where it almost makes it sentient in this weird tulpa sort of way. And then you yeah. walk away from it. It is. It's it's harrowing actually. By the end of the book, it's really harrowing, and I I won't say any more. But I like I like that the ending isn't just about the the, the bad thing being killed. Put it that way. I I, I was actually yeah. quite surprised by how sort of sentimental and nuanced the ending was. And uh, yeah, I, I, it, it oh thanks. It, it allowed me some kind of closure, and otherwise I, I would have struggled with. <laughs> I think one thing that a lot of writers are doing now, which and a lot of genre writers are doing now, I should say, which isn't, and I don't want to dismiss anything that's come before, but I think it's a more general thing now. A lot of genre writers really are moving away from this idea of good guys and bad guys. There's this real idea that, hey, there are no good guys and bad guys. Everyone's got a point of view. Now, someone throws in Nazis and you're like, okay, fine. But once you bring up Nazis, you've lost the argument. But, you know, I think that's somewhere genres going where Lord of the Rings, there were good guys and bad guys, but then Star Wars, Darth Vader's his dad. You know what I mean? So I think as that's becoming a more and more complicated issue in genre. Yeah. Now I know we, uh, we've got a few minutes left cause you've got to get to another call. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. No, no. Let me rifle through with um, my, my last few questions. Yeah. Because basically this year you had cinematic success with my best friend's exorcism on amazon prime over here in the uk i don't know i don't know where it was in the states yeah amazon prime in the state people loved it are there is there any news on other adaptations because last i read charlie's theron was involved with final girl support group yeah she's involved with final girl support group they've got a showrunner it's over at hbo they've got a pilot script they're just you know thrashing out that pilot script before moving forward and um Andy and Barbara Machete, who did the It movies and who've done the new Flash movie, they're on board as the directors of the pilot and the producers of the pilot. Then uh, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, it's also at HBO. Uh, we just got the showrunner on board. We're working on a pilot script now. I'm going to be involved with that pretty deeply. Um, and Horror Store is going to be a feature film. We've got a director attached. I can't say their name, but I'm the screenwriter. We finally, after 22 drafts, have a final script, and we're really hoping there's an announcement soon. So, um, yeah, lots of lots of stuff going on. But you know, it's Hollywood, man. Like you know, it's like it's like um, salmon spawning. Only two or three of us make it to the to the promised land. Wow, that is that's quite the rest awesome. get eaten by bears. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always end on the same two questions. I'm going to tweak one for you because you answered it last time. First of all, though, okay. and we'll be quick here, Grady, recommend a yeah. book that my listeners may want to read. Okay, so I'm going to recommend a book that you can find used copies of very easily on Amazon. Um, it's a book that really blew me away. Um, and it's called Moth Manor, M-O-T-H Manor, like, you know, moths that fly around light bulbs. It's from the 70s, and it's by a writer named Martha Bacon. And it's basically about a haunted dollhouse. And it is 
absolutely exquisite. It is one of the the funniest, but it's almost as if you discovered a female Neil Gaiman, <laughs> only funnier and writing about dolls. Um, I imagine the Phantom Toll booth crossed with like a Neil Gaiman story. It just blew me away. And I can't believe it's out of print, but I picked up a copy for like $2 on a used book site. Um, so I highly recommend it. Um, Moth Manor. I shall start scouring. And my last question is normally, what truly scares you? But you've answered that question before. So I'm going to ask you a different one very quickly because you're a cineast. What's your mm. favorite haunted house movie or the scariest mm. haunted house movie? The scariest haunted house movie. So it's it's a little hard because I actually find haunted houses comforting to some extent. Um, but I will say that um, The Shining is a movie I saw way too young. And it really, that and Poltergeist really, really stuck with me in an unsavory way. But the movie that I still think works on every single level and is terrifying is the 1963 Robert Wise adaptation of Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House, which is just called The Haunting. Um, it is still freaking spooky. Um, it still works. It's still amazing. Um, but I'm also, you know, just want to give a shout out. There is a really savage, very wrong, I feel weird even uh, recommending it, but there's a haunted house movie called The Entity. Um, yeah. about a woman in a house with a ghost that's basically a, a sexual predator. It Barbara is, Hershey, right? Barbara Hershey, yeah. Her performance, it's a sleazy genre movie, which is why I think her performance, her performance is really incredible in yeah. that. And if you can get past sort of the the on-the-surface exploitation elements, and good for you if you can't. I'm, I'm, I suck. But it is a really relentlessly downbeat and powerful movie. Um, yeah. The movie I cannot recommend is the Amityville Horror. I will go on the record saying that is a failure of a haunted house movie. <laughs> I can't. I think the scares are cheap and and the, the 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 camera work is not good at all. I think you gave the right answer with the haunting. But anyway, let's leave it there, Grady. You've got to dash off. But I want to say, really love this book. Really, really enjoyed it a great deal. And um, and thank you very much for talking scared. Yeah, absolutely. Talking to Grady is always an absolute blast. I, I never kind of know where he's going to take the conversation next. I, I certainly didn't expect a biographical revelation about radical puppetry. <laughs> um, I hope this episode did give you a taste of the tone and intent of How to Sell a Haunted House, because the mix of laughs and seriousness in that chat is entirely representative of the book, I think with this and his last novel, Final Girl Support Group, Grady is really entering a whole new phase in his career. Now, it seems patronising to say that, so I didn't want to bang on about it to him directly. But whilst I enjoyed his previous stuff in a smirking, inside a baseball sort of way, I now love how he is mixing deconstruction with earnestness in his more recent stuff. Like he says, irony is cheap, and in a shitty world, it can be easy to settle for that. But I think we need meaning more than ever, especially in our horror. God, the way he makes this puppet scary, Pupkin, and then also makes him heartbreaking, it's, it's quite the magic trick. And I mentioned that at times, the book comes close to Robert Aikman's sense of unsettling weirdness. 
Well, to give a more contemporary comparison, thinking about it, the whole section in the middle with Mark and his radical puppet collection, that feels quite close to Paul Tremblay's uncanny playbook. It's certainly creepy in a way that I haven't read Grady do before. And then the next minute, you're laughing. So, yeah, I really enjoyed How to Sell a Haunted House. And I read it in, like, two days. Grady mentioned a, a British low-key poltergeist movie. And I was intrigued, so I went deep into IMDb to find what I think it might be. I'm pretty sure it's an urban ghost story from 1998, directed by Genevieve Joliffe. Now, the plot follows, and I'm quoting here, 12-year-old Lizzie, who, after being involved in a road traffic accident and suffering a near-death experience, feels that she is haunted by a malicious spirit that she brought back with her from the afterlife. Although surrounded by people who disbelieve her claims, Lizzie and her mother eventually encounter a journalist who, although initially sceptical, comes to believe the claims, and with the assistance of a university parapsychologist, the family start to confront the events. Well, that sounds pretty cool, if very knocked off from The Exorcist. Um, I'm guessing it's aged terribly, as so many British films have from the early 80s, particularly genre films. But if we can find it somewhere, let's watch it and let's talk about it. Because after all, Grady credits it with getting him started in haunted houses. And that's a good thing. Now, speaking of talking about it, I've got loads of new listeners recently off the back of the State of the Nation episode and my Stephen Graham Jones book giveaway. Yep, SGJ will be in the house very soon. But if you are new, or if you're an existing listener, or, or anyone, get in touch. That's half the beauty of doing this show, talking to you guys. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TalkScaredPod or email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. There's the Patron if you want more episodes, more of me for some crazy reason. That's at Patreon.com slash TalkingScaredPod or use the link in the show notes. And if you like this show, please subscribe and leave a review. That makes my, my little heart glow. I'm back next week with Britain's queen of gothic crime thrillers, C.J. Tudor, though this time her mystery and murder takes place at the end of the world. Until then, be nice to your siblings, throw away things you don't need, and wear socks only on your feet. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>